Well, good morning, and it's good to be with you again today as we continue our look into Jesus' longest discourse concerning future things known as the Olivet Discourse. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the opportunity to be here today. I pray that your Holy Spirit will work in each of our hearts, that you would change our lives as we expose ourselves to your word and that the glory of Jesus Christ will shine that even though our outer body is decaying, our inner man be renewed day by day. We pray that you will bring us in that direction today through our time together. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts will be pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends of ours that formerly lived in Wyoming went through a fitness check in order to be able to reduce their health insurance costs that they were receiving, in part at least, through his company. If they maintained a certain level of physical fitness, they would get a reduction in the premiums and they could save some money themselves. So they would follow the protocol and do everything they possibly could because blood sugar was checked, blood pressure was checked, body mass index, cholesterol levels, these were all things that were used to determine a person's physical health and whether or not there could be a benefit that would be given to them even financially. But you know, if some person lost some extra pounds, maybe he got the blood sugar down to normal when it was formerly too high, let's just imagine them standing in line and the person who still has some pounds to shed and didn't really go on the exercise machine and certainly didn't watch what he ate, and they're standing in line and he turns around and says, hey, uh, but, sir, could, could I give you a few of my pounds? Uh, could, um, and by, could I borrow your blood pressure? Um, well, that's impossible. And even if it was possible, the people would say, no, I can't give you that because then I'll go in and my blood pressure will be too high and my weight will be too, too much. I can't do that. Plus, it takes a lot of time for that to develop. It takes time to lose that extra 10 or 20 pounds. It takes time to get the blood sugar down. It, you can't just eat one salad and expect everything to be okay. There's habits routines, um, consistency. These are all necessary. Well, friends, I want to share with you today that as it relates not to our physical but to our spiritual fitness, a number of these things are also true. It takes time. It takes consistency. There's a price tag for it. It doesn't come in a hurry and overnight. One morning of devotions doesn't solve all the issues. Our spiritual fitness is something that needs constant attention. And today our parable addresses that very topic. The captain of our salvation 
is one that has issued a warning that the world is to about to uh, experience severe turbulence. There's a number of names that the Bible calls that, the great travail, the time of Jacob's trouble, the 70th week of Daniel, but best known as the tribulation period. We've been discussing it, and Jesus outlines some of the events, and the book of Revelation tells us more details of those seven years. Jesus uses the analogy of a woman going into labor because the earth is about to birth a new kingdom. Those seven years prior to that birth, however, are difficult. And just like a woman's labor pains, they begin that are not so severe, but they increase with intensity and severity as time goes on before the birth takes place. And so too, the world will experience seven years of tribulation, but the beginning part won't be quite as severe as later as it all intensifies, and especially the persecution of believers. You see, during those seven years, there are going to be Christians because people will come to faith in Jesus Christ. This whole time period is called the parousia, the Greek word for coming. It's the events of the coming itself. The coming of Jesus Christ is what follows this parousia, but it's made up of seven years of what are called birth pangs and great birth pangs. And in the very middle, the book of Revelation tells us at the exact day of the middle of those seven years, that three and a half year point is an event called the abomination of desolation. Again, it's where the man of sin by that time has gained control basically of world powers. He will set up his image in the temple in Jerusalem and defile God's temple. He will demand the worship of his image by all and those who don't, he will go after with a vengeance to decapitate them. Jesus teaches us about that event. And during those first three and a half years, there will be many Jewish people that will come to faith in Jesus Christ through the testimony of two witnesses, thousands of those people. But Jesus said, when you see this abomination of desolation, get out of town fast. Don't pack a bag or a lunch. You don't have time. And head for the wilderness mountains and hide because he's coming after you. Revelation chapter 12 teaches us even more detail about that event. The second half of the tribulation period is more difficult. In fact, Jesus tells us that the love of many will grow cold. I believe that what he's referring to are believers, but whose love begins to wane because they don't have the spiritual resources to continue. Their love now grows cold. Believers during this period of time will go in one of two directions. Some will persevere through the difficult days of persecution. Others are going to wane spiritually and weaken. And today's parable addresses that in detail. There's two types of believers today, and there's two types of believers in the tribulation period, faithful and unfaithful. Faithful believers today and unfaithful believers. Faithful believers during the tribulation and unfaithful believers. Those who are spiritually strong and continue to pursue spiritual growth and those who neglect spiritual growth and those who put it on the back burner and save it for another day never to actually experience it. Jesus teaches about that very issue. 
Today's parable also surrounds the context of a first century wedding. Now, it's important for us to know some of the details in that culture of wedding practices. Um, A number of scholars have done work on this topic and subject, Uh, some by the names of Dr. Edwin Yamauchi, uh, Jehoiakim Jeremias, uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum, Dr. Renald Showers, all have contributed to subjects of this, or to this subject and to studies of this. John Clay's actually summarizes study when he says this, concerning the first century wedding practices. In the late afternoon or early evening, the bridegroom would set out from home with a a group of his companions. The groom would then go out to a predetermined meeting place, such as the house of the bride. And there he would meet his bride, and with her ladies-in-waiting, the two wedding parties would merge and they would return to the house where the wedding supper would be held. And usually it was held at the home of the bridegroom where the father would preside. If he was a wealthy man, he would contribute and provide a large amount of food, but he would also provide festive entertainment, which would involve, in many cases, virgin women. Now, in the practice, there was nothing seductive, there was nothing immoral about this event. These women would simply provide entertainment of certain types of dancing, appropriate. They would be the evening's entertainment, and it was a privilege for them to do that. That's what they gathered for. That's what they practiced for. They're going to provide for all of the guests who experience this feast and this festive time in a lighted banquet hall. This isn't the only parable that Jesus uses wedding analogy to teach us, but it's important for us to understand some of the cultural context. Now, before we look into the parable itself, let me be very clear. These virgins are not the bride. These virgins are not the bride. The bride is different. The virgins are separate and different from the bride. Let me continue to read what Claves has to say. To help us understand this parable even better, we need to remember that Israel and Jerusalem are the earthly home of the bridegroom. By the way, Jeremiah 3 teaches us that. The Messianic king's home is Jerusalem. Now, 2,000 years ago, he left that home... He walked out of his house, so to speak, of Jerusalem and went to the Mount of Olives outside of his house and he went up into the clouds. When he ascended into heaven in clouds, he eventually meets his bride catching God's people, the church, in the clouds, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago. The bride of Christ are present believers and believers ever since the apostles. The dead in Christ rise first. Those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And now the bride and the groom have been united, but now it's time for the groom to take his bride back to his home. And what he does is he takes it back to his home, Jerusalem. 
and then returns to set up his kingdom, and he will be met on earth by those not only who have believed in him, but have been prepared to go out and meet him, and then they will enter in to the festive wedding ceremonies and the festive wedding activities where the privileges for the guests and for the dancers will take place. This imagery is crucial to understand as we go into the parable of the ten virgins about the bridegroom who leaves and eventually comes back. These virgins, in my opinion, represent those Jewish believers coming to faith in the first three and a half years of that tribulation period. And Jesus has a word of caution to them, a word of encouragement to them. I'm convinced, by the way, that people who come to faith in Jesus Christ during that time are going to wear the pages of Revelation, Daniel, and the Olivet Discourse they're going to wear those pages down. Those pages are going to demonstrate that they've been studied. They're going to be well-worn because they're going to be the lifeblood of these Christians. Because of what they are and going to experience, these pages are going to be everything to them to maintain perseverance through difficult times. We are the bride of Christ. The Apostle Paul says the church of Jesus Christ, that is, all believers, people who have put their faith in Christ alone for eternal life, are his bride. And we will meet our groom in the air, and he will take us back to his home as the kingdom is then birthed at his second coming. Let's look at this parable and make some comparisons with previous teaching of Jesus in the discourse as to what it means. In the first two verses, the virgins prepare and go out to meet the bridegroom. Now, let me stop there. All the virgins want to see the bridegroom. These virgins are divided into two groups, the wise and the fools. But all of them want to see the bridegroom. We are not talking about the distinction between Christian virgins and non-Christians. These women are not divided between those who have eternal life and those who don't. But they are divided in a different way. And that's what we want to address in this parable. Then, that is, after the events that have been described in the previous parable that we also know as the rapture, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. It's evening. By the way, these tribulation days of seven years are described by both Amos and Zephaniah as very dark days. They're very dark days. And towards that evening, they want to meet the bridegroom, so they take their lamps that have oil to go out and meet the bridegroom. They all want to meet him, all ten of them. In verse 2, we have the foolish virgins do not take oil reserves. Excuse me, verse 3. Now, when Jesus talks about the foolish and the wise, this isn't the first time that that's in the book of Matthew. 
If you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus concludes his sermon and he says this, he who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on a rock and when the rains and floods and storms of life come his way, he is able to stand firm because he has built his life on a rock. But the foolish man is the one who hears these words of mine but does not do them. Both heard, both understood, one takes action, the other doesn't. The foolish one builds his life on the sand, and when the storms of life come and the floods and the rains, his life falls apart because he has not done what the, what, what the master has taught. The wise and the fool are distinguished by their ability to withstand difficult days and difficult times. One builds his life on the rock, something that you've already sung about this morning, by the way. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. When a Christian does that, they're actually building their lives on Jesus Christ and being able to withstand and persevere through difficult days. But the foolish virgins... Well, they're different. Notice it says in verse 3, those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. They grabbed the lamp. Let's go meet the bridegroom. The lamp has some oil. It's nighttime. But they don't take any reserves. They don't take another jar or vessel with added oil because what if they're going to need it? What if there's a delay? What if there's... What if there's a, the need for more oil? They really don't think about that. They just grab the lamp and ready to head out the door to go meet the bridegroom. And again, they have to go out because the bridegroom is coming back to the Mount of Olives. So they have to go out to meet the bridegroom. But they bring no additional oil. But the wise virgins do take oil reserves. Notice in verse 4, but the wives took oil in their vessels with their lamps. So now they not only grab the lamp, they grab some extra, some refill. <laughs> they want to make sure that they have adequate reserves to keep that lamp burning. And in doing so, they are wise. Well, then they both fall asleep. Look at verse 5. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Now, one might think that Jesus is referring to spiritual lethargy, but I don't think so. The reason why is this. First of all, both the wise and the fool take some siesta time. They both relax. They both take a nap. It's not descriptive of the wise if it was spiritual lethargy, but it's not. What I think is referred to here is this. Jesus said in the discourse earlier that the first part of the, the tribulation, the birth pang time, things will not be as difficult because he says, let not your heart be troubled. Um, there's going to be things happening. There's going to be wars, rumors of wars. There's going to be natural disasters happening, but don't get too shook up. Don't, uh, don't get troubled about it. It's kind of like a reprieve before things really bust loose. 
And so these virgins take a nap. They sleep. Um, the bridegroom is delayed. He's not coming immediately, not within those moments. But then in verse 6, things change. The midnight cry and the virgins awake. Notice in verse 6 and 7, and at the midnight a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then it says all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. Now the word midnight in Greek is actually two words. One word in English, midnight. In Greek, it's middle of the night. Very interesting. Because Jesus already told us that the abomination of desolation is going to happen, and Revelation tells us it's going to happen right on the very day of the middle of those three and a half years. And in the middle of the night, a cry is going to go out. And that cry is going to say, he's coming. And Jesus had already taught that the abomination of desolations is one of the signs that is a signal that it's near, that his second coming is close. When you hear this, he says, and you see this sign, you know that he says, my coming is near. So the midnight cry, and I believe that the cry is, get out of Dodge. The image has been set up. The beast is on a rampage. Leave. Go hide. As the cry goes out to believers on the streets of Jerusalem and throughout Israel and various places in homes and businesses, etc. The midnight cry. It's a signal. His coming is close. Verse 8. We have the depletion of the foolish virgins' oil and their departure. Verse 8, And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Can, can I borrow some of your oil? Uh, I don't have enough. I, I didn't bring a vessel. I don't have a refill. How about you? Do you have any oil for me to... to I'm out. My, my flame is starting to flicker. I, I need to refill. Does anybody have any extra? And the five wise say... We can't give you any of our extra. If we give it to you, we won't have enough. Uh, you should have taken some, but you didn't. I, I'd like to, but I can't. So, what we have here, the wise answering in verse 9, no, lest there should not be enough for us and, and you. Go rather to those who sell and buy oil for yourselves. And while they went to buy... The bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Now, first of all, notice that the wise say to the foolish ones, go out and buy some. In other words, it's not free. The oil has a price tag to it. It's not like eternal life that is offered to all of us freely at no cost because Jesus paid the cost. Rather, something to purchase. There's a price that needs to be paid. And they say, go, go to the people who, who sell and 
go buy some for yourself. So because the wise were not willing to give them theirs, these foolish ones go off to buy their own. But while they're gone, the bridegroom arrives and the five were ready for him. And the bridegroom takes them into the banquet hall. The festivities can begin. The five can do their torch dance and provide the entertainment, and the food is spread on the large table. And the banquet can begin, but the door gets shut. The door gets shut. And what happens is the foolish ones come back. In verse 11, it says, Afterwards the virgins came, the other virgins came, also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said to them, Surely I say to you, I do not know you. Now some might jump to the conclusion that the words here, I don't know you, means that they were not Christians or saved people because Jesus did say in Matthew 7 to people who were doing miracles in Jesus' name and they were healing in Jesus' name and they were prophesying in Jesus' name. And Jesus says to them, I never knew you and does not permit them to go into the kingdom. Today, as I'm speaking, there are thousands of pastors around this country who are pulpits and they are naming Jesus and saying things about Jesus. And they're raising money for needy people in Jesus' name. And they're praying in Jesus' name. And, but they don't know Jesus because they haven't put their faith in him alone for eternal life. And to those, Jesus will say, as they say, we raise money for hurricane victims in your name. Uh, every Sunday I preached in your name. I, uh, I prayed, I always said in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, I never knew you. But in this passage, the word is different. In the previous one, it's gnosko, but in this word, the Greek word is oida. And oida can carry a different meaning. In fact, Paul uses the word oida in 1 Thessalonians when he talks about the elders of a church and he says to the congregation, esteem them highly for their work's sake or honor them, respect them. The word respect or esteem is the Greek word oida. And here, what is being said to these foolish virgins is, no, you can't come in because I don't honor you. I cannot honor you. Um, I cannot esteem you tonight. Tonight, I cannot honor you. And they refuse the privilege, the privileges that await of performing for the king, for the bridegroom, and for his bride, and for those who are at the banquet. A loss of privilege of the wedding festivities. Now, don't get me wrong. Everybody enters the kingdom. 
but not everybody enters abundantly, Peter says. And the wise virgins enter abundantly because they are also not only granted entrance into the kingdom, they are allowed privilege of service to the king at the wedding festival at his exact return. It's their reward. And what brought it about is the fact that they had extra oil and they could stick it out. And Jesus says, as he uses this inclusio in verse 13, watch therefore for you do not know the day or hour to which the Son of Man is coming. He started this section and said, no man knows the day or hour. And then this, he concludes in this second parable. Two parables now, one referring to saints of today who will be alive at the coming of Christ and will be taken in the rapture. And the second parable referring to saints in the future, in the tribulation period, but urging both of them to be prepared. The first group does not know when he's coming at all. The second group is unprepared for his coming. Those who are prepared in the first group receive the reward we addressed last week, and those who are prepared in the second group experience the privileges of the wedding festivities. What is the application for tribulation saints? Again, their pages are going to be worn as they read this. And the wise believers of those seven years are going to see this parable and want to be wise. And they are going to build up their oil reserves by building up their spiritual lives and their walk by faith with Jesus Christ. They will have the spiritual resources to withstand the second half. And when the bridegroom comes, they will stand strong because they have persevered, because they have the resources in order to be able to do so. Their light will burn brightly the entire time. They will be able to because they prepared ahead of time. They used the first years to deposit into their spiritual vessels that they had the stamina, that they had the spiritual health to be able to withstand those difficult days to come. That's what this parable teaches to them. But you might ask, what does it teach to us? We're not going to go through those seven years. Our captain says that we're having a diverted flight plan. We're not going through that severe turbulence. But he does tell us through his word that we are going to experience aspects of turbulence and trials and difficulties now. And what we are told in the scriptures are statements like this. Abide in him so that when he appears, we will not shrink away in shame at his coming. Abiding in him is a day-to-day -day relationship and a growing intimacy with Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul says, and having done everything to stand, in Ephesians 6, as we face the enemy of our souls, Paul instructs believers to take precautions immediately and prepare yourself that you may be able to stand in the evil day, he says. 
Putting on the armor of God is not something done in five minutes or one days of devotions. It's not done through one spiritual salad. It's done over a period of time as we build into our lives by making use of the resources that God gives. We learn how to put on the helmet of salvation and the breastplate of righteousness and that shield of faith grows stronger and stronger each day as our faith grows stronger and stronger and our ability to withstand the personal attacks of the enemy. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. And that leads us to our application. Spiritual reserves are necessary for spiritual challenges, but spiritual reserves are deposited in advance. They're not borrowed in crisis or at the last minute. They have a price tag. Every morning I have a friend that lives in my garage. He calls my name. I don't like my friend. I don't enjoy my time with my friend. It's my elliptical machine. <laughs> Every morning when I wake up, I hear him calling. Don, you need me. I usually go to him five mornings a week. And I don't go to him because I think I'm going to appease God by going to him. I go, go to him out of some legalistic law. I go to him because I need it. I need him. He helps me with my physical health as I spend 30 minutes withstanding his pain, listening to the news and a podcast. Jesus Christ every day is calling my name. You need me. You need me. Come. Spend some time with me. Talk to me. Let me talk to you through my word. Not every day that I go into the word do I leave with a spiritual high. Right now I'm reading through the book of Joshua, and frankly, I see principles that minister to my soul, but I don't walk away just, Patty, I can't wait to tell you what I... Not every day is like that. Some days are, but, but I will tell you what is true every day, and that is I leave every day of spending time with God and his word, I leave with a sense that a little bit more oil has been deposited in the vessel. I just sense that. Something that I may draw upon later, even if I don't draw upon it right now. To spend time in prayer, to spend time in his word, but it's costly. It takes time. I like to hit the ground running. You probably do too. But. And then there's the time of spending with God's people. You see, that's one of the spiritual resources that God has given us. It's called the church of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ. That too is part of the oil that God has for us to build up our spiritual lives that the vessels can be full and we can draw upon it when needed. 
That's why we have small groups in this church, because there are things that that context gives that this context doesn't. Interaction, I'm praying for you. Helping each other in times of need. Gaining advice and counsel. When we come together, we're able to benefit from that, but we're also able to give it to others. It's a synergism that God has designed. And yes, I know when you come home from the commute and it's been a long day and community group or small group or meeting with a couple of guys for prayer and fellowship, I'd rather just go home tonight and just put my feet up and hit Netflix and watch a movie. But there is a price tag. Call it what you want. Paul calls it disciplines and exercises. You can call it routines, habits, whatever be the case. If your motivation is to grow in intimacy with Christ and also desire that spiritual vessel to be a little bit more filled, you won't regret it because that's how the light keeps shining and your love does not grow cold. Can I say this? People whose love grow cold and don't have the spiritual resources, when they go through trials, they're very, very self-focused. They have no love to give to anybody else. They're totally consumed by their own problems. It's all about them because they don't have any resources left to offer to somebody else. Their flame is flickering. Their love grows cold. They're doing all they can to keep themselves moving ahead. Paul says, I buffet my body, lest having preached to others, I myself should become disqualified from the imperishable crown. There's a price tag that's involved in building up those spiritual resources. Time with God, time with God's people, prayer, meditation on the scriptures that his promises reach down into the recesses of our hearts. That when the tough times come, they hold us steady. Oh, the pain is still there. The trials are still difficult. But the light keeps burning. Those are the wise. They build their lives on a solid rock, the Lord Jesus Christ, not on sinking sand. When the floods of life come and when persecution increases, which it will in this country, it's just around the corner. There's just a few deterrents, in my personal opinion, that are keeping it from going totally unleashed. If you believe in biblical marriage, if you believe when life begins at conception, if you believe that the Bible is the absolute for truth and life and a host of other things, the ruler of this world has plenty of people to come after you. Are we prepared? Are we ready? Or will we go silent? Will our flame flicker and we'll go into secrecy? The king is looking for people 
whose lives will keep on shining brightly for Jesus Christ. Patty and I have no greater example today of someone who is experiencing deep pain, but because of their spiritual resources that have been deposited for decades with faith in Jesus Christ and a growing relationship with him, that in the midst of their pain, they still have love that's very warm and bright for others. I shared with you the first message of this series that our daughter called us on June 28, 2018, that her back pain was really the symptoms of stage four cancer permeated throughout her body, including major organs. She's not out of the woods. Another report this week is that things aren't as bright as they appeared to be a couple of months ago. Another PET scan a week from tomorrow. And, but my story isn't about her, and it's not about us. My story is about somebody else. See, my daughter contracted this in her late 30s. But there's a couple in our church whose daughter also contracted severe cancer in her 30s. And a number of months ago in her late 30s, the Lord took her home. But this couple have come to Patty and I more than once. In fact, just last week again, for another time. We're praying for Christy. And we're praying that God will heal her. And I stopped to think, would I be able to do that? Would I have enough spiritual reserves to continue to love people like that? in the midst of my pain? Well, friends, that doesn't come overnight. That comes through depositing in the vessels of our walk with God. And when the tough times come, those who made those deposits are still burning. When I was a child, I attended Sunday school every week, and I had no clue what I was singing about. But today I know, give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. Give me oil in my lamp, I pray. Give me oil in my lamp, keep me burning. Keep me burning till the break of day. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, that song is our prayer today. And we pray that you will help us to be wise and to make use of every drop of oil that you've made available to us. Your word, the privilege of talking to you, and your people. And Father, we do not want to be experiencing anything but the intimacy of our Savior who is knocking at the door of our hearts, 
who wants to come in and dine with us and us with him. In Jesus' name, amen.